Well, good morning. It is good to be with. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, it's it's good. To, it's good to be with you. It is. Uh, it's really a, a pleasure to be here this morning and to speak to you, the the people of Gresham Bible Church. Apparently, we are a Bible church and an assembly of people who prioritize the Bible. And I suspect that means that we are to grant it some place, some, some privilege in, in how we comport ourselves as a church. So we're going to uh, launch a, a series this morning that's going to take us through the rest of the summer into early fall, looking at our eight distinctives as a church, and then uh, I think a few others after that to, to to give some some intentional thought and teaching as as, as to where the, the church stands with regard to some of the other things that we do. But we're beginning today with the first of our distinctives, which is that Scripture is central to all that we do. So if you have a Bible, which you should, <laughs> open it to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The Apostle Paul, mentor to Timothy, great pastor teacher of the early church and the author of many of the books of the Bible, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to his young protege, Timothy. He writes, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Would you pray with me just briefly again? Father, we ask now, especially now, as we are thinking about what you've given to us in Scripture, please open your word up to us and and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we we are Gresham Bible Church. That speaks to the priority that the scriptures play in in what we do and how we do things here. But, But the Bible has not always played such a prioritized role in the life of the church and its people. About 700 years ago, there was an English scholar named John Wycliffe, and he was considered by the church and by the state to be dangerously out of step for believing that the Bible needed to be central in the lives of Christ's people. And that sounds really weird because that was considered out of step with the church. He he very famously said, and I got to do it in the old King James, the old English here, he said, it helpeth Christian men to study the gospel in that tongue, that language, in which they know best Christ's sentence. So so, so this is revolutionary thought. It would be best to give the Bible to the people in a language they can actually speak and understand. For that, he was deemed a heretic, a disturber of the peace, a threat to the church and all things that are right. Well, Wycliffe is responsible for the English, the first English translation of the Bible. And for that, again, he was pronounced a heretic. He translated the Bible from the Latin translation, the Vulgate. And, and, and it, was, it was amazing, the response to it. People were not used to hearing the Bible in a language they actually spoke and understood. They began to hear Bible teaching. Again, in a language they could understand for the first time. And one of the results was they began to compare their leaders with the biblical teaching on what good leaders are supposed to be with some of the Bible figures. And their leaders, their priests, did not compare very well. Wycliffe translated the New Testament in 1380. The Old Testament followed in 1382. And the penalty for people being caught reading one of his English translations was forfeiture of land, cattle, life, and goods. 
Now, how many Bibles do you have in your possession, not counting what you have on your phone? The penalty for being caught with an English translation of the Bible in England, <laughs> in the English-speaking world, forfeiture of life or of land, cattle, life, and goods. I don't know if that was the order they did it, but that's, that's that, yeah. Pope John XXIII proclaimed in 1411 this pestilent and wretched John Wycliffe of cursed memory. He, he had died a few years earlier. That son of the old serpent endeavored by every means to attach the very faith and sacred doctrine of the Holy Church, devising to fill up the measure of his malice, the expedient of a new translation of the scriptures into the mother tongue. Four years later, in 1415, at the Council of Constance, there was a fellow by the name of John Huss, another early reformer. He was a disciple of Wycliffe, and, and he was condemned to be burned at the stake because he thought, to, along with Wycliffe, that people ought to have a Bible in a language that they understand. And, and, and while there, they condemned, the council condemned the writings of Wycliffe. And, and Wycliffe was already dead, but the council ordered that his body be interned, removed from the sacred cemetery. His bones were then burned. His bones were burned at the stake and the ashes dumped into the river Swift. Scripture is central to all that we do. One of the distinctives, the first distinctive of Gresham Bible Church and where we'll start this morning, this series, we are committed to expository preaching because we deeply believe that what the Bible says about itself is true. We believe that God's word is the foundational way through which God works in the world. Therefore, scripture is central in all of our ministries because it is our authority, our light, and brings life to all who receive it. This morning, as we launch this series, maybe you're here and you're coming because you're curious about Jesus, maybe curious about the Bible, but you aren't sure what, whether you want to join the ranks of those who call themselves Christians. For you, I, I would really invite you to consider the way that the Bible describes itself. We sang a song about it even before the sermon, ancient words. Ask yourself this. If the Bible actually is the word of God, if what it says about itself is true, what ought I to do in response? What should I do? For the rest of us, you, you do believe the Bible is the word of God. I would invite you to consider afresh this morning the claims of the Bible and ask yourself whether you have been prioritizing the Bible as you should. Does it play the role in your life that the very word of God ought to? So we begin basically where our uh, distinctive begins, Scripture is the Word of God. That is, Scripture claims to be the Word of God. And, and you might be thinking, you might th is, is that really what it boils down to, Todd? That, that, that we believe the Bible is the Word of God because it says it's the Word of God? That's not a very persuasive argument. Isn't that a circular argument? And aren't all circular arguments bad? Can't we do better than that? Well, let me say this. No. We can't. <laughs> we can't. Because when it comes to ultimate authority, the best argument that can be made is to appeal to that ultimate authority. Now, now think of, of, of the logic of this. Who or what could possibly validate the Bible as the word of God better than God himself? And if God has testified in that word that this is his word, we're really not going to get a better argument than that. Now, I get it. That might not be the most persuasive thing, but it's, it's not accurate to say, oh, that's just a circular argument, therefore it's bad. Circular arguments aren't necessarily bad. Bad circular arguments are bad. But when it comes to authority, where you make an appeal to authority, this is what we're left with. And, and we really can't do better than that. It is a logically pristine and perfect argument. I get it. It might not be that persuasive. So there's more that can be said, but we can't say better, actually, than God declares his word to be his word. Because if there was something or someone that could testify better than God himself as to what the word of God is, then that something or someone would be more trustworthy than God himself. 
Does that make sense? So we're we're kind of left with that. When it comes to God, it's impossible to go higher up the chain. So by saying the Bible declares itself to be the word of God, that's as far up the chain as we can possibly go. That's just the nature of things when it comes to ultimate authority. There is nothing and no one greater than God himself. Therefore, only God can testify authoritatively, powerfully, the most powerfully, then uh, only God can do that. Uh, we see that even in, in, on the pages of scripture, like in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, we read this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. He swore by himself. So again, self-testimony might not be super persuasive. I get it. But when it comes to ultimate authority, we need to listen to God because who else can better testify to the Bible's divine character than God himself? Only God can flawlessly identify what is divine. So here's what the Bible has to say about its origin story. How did we get the Bible? And the origin story of the Bible is that it is inspired. It's inspired. So here's, here's our verse that we started with, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We're going to unpack this a couple times. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Verse 17, that, in order that, purpose statement, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We'll turn back to verse 17 in a moment. But let's start here. We note first that scripture does what it does because it is what it is. That's the order. All scripture is breathed out by God. And therefore, if you will, it does these things. It's not the other way around. We don't look at scripture pragmatically and say, wow, this is a pretty powerful book. It does some really cool things. We're going to christen it, if you will, christen it, the word of God. It's not how it works. No, the Bible is what it is. Therefore, it does what it does. I find myself at home saying this a lot of time. Uh, (laughs) There was a time when my kids were younger um, that they would like to jump on their beds. And I would say, your bed is not designed for jumping on. We have something that is designed for jumping on. It's the trampoline, right, in, in our backyard. Go jump on that. And they looked at me like I was the biggest idiot in the world. It's like, you know, it's like, why are you jumping on the bed? And they're like, well, why not jump on the bed? Because that's not what it's made for. That's not what it is. So we get form and then function. Function flows out of what the thing is. We note here also that the Bible is said to be breathed out by God, breathed out by God. And and that phrase breathed out by God is one Greek word. It's a compound word, theopneustos. So so it's a compound word, theos, which is the Greek word for God. And then neustos, which is the word, it's it's an adjectival form of the word having to do with the spirit or wind or breath. And this one word, it's the only time that is used in the entire Bible, which is problematic for Bible translators. They're not quite sure what to do with it. What, how, how do we best translate this word when we don't have it anywhere else in the Bible? What you would normally do is then you would turn to any sort of extant Greek literature from that time period. Extant just means that we dug it out of the ground some, at some point in time and we have it in our possession. And, and you, you, we, we read through all of the Koine Greek literature of the time period, like 300 BC to 380, and that word doesn't show up anywhere. It's like the Apostle Paul made up a word. I guess it's good to be an apostle. You can, you can, you can do things like that. Um, and so, so what people do with it, what translators do, is they just very woodenly translate it. It is God-breathed, God-breathed. Or they might say it is inspired, which gives us our doctrine of inspiration. Inspired, spired, like spirated, but inspired, which it, it makes it, so the word inspired makes it sound like it is breathed in, but that's not the whole point. It's breathed out by God. So really, we probably should say, we, we should have a doctrine of expiration. 
But then that, we can't say that, like all scripture is expired. That right, makes it sound like it's milk left out too long or something, right? So we're just stuck with it. We, we, we just say it's inspired. So we have a word. We have a, a word for the origin of the Bible. But that still doesn't tell us what it actually is. There's other verses, though. A letter from Peter, his second, his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. This is what he had to say about the scriptures. He said, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, that is no, no writing of scripture, comes from someone's own. And the word there is interpretation, but it's probably better understood as origination. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the scriptures, they're not of human origin. They arise from the will of God, not the will of man. What does this mean? It means that, that, okay, just pretend for a moment that you're the apostle Paul. You don't wake up one morning and say, what am I going to do today? You know what? I want to, I want to write some scripture. I'm going to write some scripture today. Then you sit down with your pen or stylus or iPad or whatever it is that you're using, right? And, And you go, Shazam! Or so, you're, you're like <laughs> he, you don't get to choose, even if you're an apostle, when you're going to write scripture and when you're not. It comes from God's origination. He is the one who starts it, starts the process. Also, humans speak forth scripture as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean to be? carried along by the Holy Spirit. We might think, well, maybe, maybe Paul like fell into a catatonic trance and then his hands were mysteriously moving and then he wakes up from it and it's like, I just wrote a letter to the Romans. I should read this. This is pretty good. I'll sign my name on that. No, that's, that's, I don't think that's what's going on. Why would we say that? Well, we can go to another passage that tells us something about what the apostles are doing. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. Again, this is Paul. He says, as he's, as he's talking about what it's like to be an apostle, <laughs> he says, we impart this, these truths, these gospel truths, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. There were, there were truths that were taught to the apostles, in this case, taught to Paul, Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, he says. And so, so the, the idea here is, is that the apostles knew what to write because the Spirit taught them the truths, and then they put them into words that accurately conveyed the teaching that they were given. So therefore, for, for Christians, I don't know if you knew this or not, but we don't believe that the Bible was dictated. That's, that's not the origin story of our Bible. We believe the Bible was inspired. Now, Muslims, for example, would argue that the Quran was dictated. Allegedly, Muhammad went into a cave, an angel appeared to him, and uh, Muhammad was, was illiterate. And so the angel just recited over and over and over and over again the verses of the Quran until Muhammad memorized them. Then he went out of the cave and he recited them to someone who could actually write them down, which is why the Quran, the Quran, I think, is Arabic for recitation. The origin story, according to the Muslims, of, of the Quran is that it was dictated. But that is not what Christians believe about the Bible. We believe it was inspired. And I think that's what makes the Bible great. I mean, I, if, if our origin story was the Bible was dictated, then that would be fine. But I think inspiration is far better. And here's why. Here's why. Because these were truths that were taught to the writers of the scriptures. The Holy Spirit is superintending this whole process. But as they wrote, there is a strong human element always to the scriptures. It is my absolute conviction that every single word of the Bible is the word of God, inspired. It is absolutely the word of God. But the Bible is also very, very human. It is a human book that is born out of human context, needs, Thoughts, emotions, all of those things are just poured out into the scriptures. 
And by saying that, I'm not diminishing the divine quality of it at all. Hopefully, you have room in your theology for something that is fully divine and fully human. Does that make sense? Jesus Christ himself, fully divine, fully human. And I'll bet Jesus, he is the son of God, but I'll bet he looked a lot like his mom because he had his Mary's DNA pouring through him, right? In the same way, you've probably noticed as you're reading the scriptures that Paul sounds a lot like Paul, but he doesn't always write like John. And if you've read the Gospel of John and then you go to 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and maybe the book of Revelation, you go, yeah, this, this is John who's writing this. He doesn't sound like Paul. It's all true. It's all 100% the word of God, but each biblical author has a style and a vocabulary that they invest into the scriptures. A little bit more on that in just a moment, but let me give you a, a, a definition of, of inspiration. Inspiration is that concurrent work of a holy God and a human author, and that author is fallen, right? Just human, just like us. Whereby the Holy Spirit so moved the human author that God got exactly what he wanted without overwhelming or destroying the human author's personality. So Paul sounds like Paul. And Peter sounds like Peter, and Isaiah sounds like Isaiah, and Moses sounds like Moses. All the biblical authors, they sound like themselves, and all of them are writing the Word of God. There's a Princeton professor named B.B. Warfield, late 1800s, early 1900s, who wrote a lot about Scripture and, and, and how we got it. And this is what he had to say. He said, the fundamental principle of this conception that is concursus, two things going on simultaneously, is that the whole of scripture is the product of divine activities which enter it, however, not by superseding the activities of the human authors, but confluently with them. So that the scriptures are the joint product of divine and human activities, both of which penetrate them at every point, working harmoniously together to the production of a writing which is not divine here and human there, but at once divine and human in every part, every word, every particular. So as we read the scriptures, we, we, we don't read them thinking, now, now where's the divine part? Where are the divine words and then where are the human words? No, every single word divine, every single word human. Orfield goes on, according to this conception, therefore the whole Bible is recognized as human, the free product of human effort in every part and word, and at the same time, the whole Bible is recognized as divine, the word of God, his utterances of which he is the tr in the truest sense, the author. At Gresham Bible, we believe the Bible is the word of God. Fully, completely. One of the terms that's often used for this is verbal plenary inspiration. I went and preached at a church once on the doctrine of scripture, and I never, I said everything about inspiration that I've been saying so far here. I never used the term verbal plenary, and there was like one person who was looking for that, and afterwards he goes, I can't believe you don't believe that all of the word of God is inspired, and I said, I think I said that, but you never said verbal plenary inspiration. So, verbal plenary inspiration. <laughs> I believe every single word, verbal, every single one, plenary of the Bible is the word of God is inspired. Now there's some implications of that. So that's what we'll think about here. All the words in scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or dis disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. That is the Bible, scripture is authoritative. And that's what we mean by it. To disobey or disbelieve the Bible is literally to disobey or disbelieve God. I don't know how many people in their right minds would say, I, I'm, I'm, I really want to disobey or disbelieve God. As if like God, were, you were in the presence of God, he says something and you go, eh, pass. Or no, I don't think so. Or not today. But if the Bible is what the Bible claims to be, then anyone who reads the words of scripture and says, eh, not today. Or I don't think so. Or hard pass on that. They are very literally disobeying or disbelieving God. So what that means for us is that we are always going to be submitted to the Bible here. It will be our ultimate authority. 
even when, and maybe we should say it this way, especially when the teaching of the Bible runs contrary to our cultural sensibilities, the spirit of this age. We will go with the Bible. And I would ask all of you, play a part in this. Make sure that Gresham Bible sticks with the Bible. Not everyone in our land is happy with that priority. Got online, I looked at the American Humanist Association. I didn't know there was such a thing, but it's, they're organized. They have a website, at least. Um, and, and what I'm saying today would be considered dangerous in their eyes. According to that association, the Bible was, quote, written solely by humans in an ignorant, superstitious, and cruel age, because we're the enlightened ones now, right? And our, our age is so much more uh, kind and gentle. They go on. Uh, they didn't say that. That was my snarky comment to it. Um, uh, they go on. Because the writers of the Bible lived in an unenlightened era, the book contains many errors and harmful teachings. And, and this is a problem, of course, because, quote, the Bible influences the opinions of many Americans on issues related to, I'll just give you the list, nuclear war, overpopulation, conservation, women's rights, gay rights, racial equality, corporal punishment of children, church-state separation, sex education, science, abortion, contraception, censorship, capital punishment, and other subjects. Probably too numerous for them to mention here. Um, and, and I would say, well, they're totally right about that. The Bible has a lot to say about those things. And if they don't like the biblical worldview, then they would consider this to be dangerous. As misguided as the Humanist Association is, they are profoundly correct that the teachings of the Bible run in sharp contrast to the sensibilities of our age and the culture in many of the most important issues of the day. Like what? Well, see, the, the, the Bible gives to us a worldview. It, it tells us who we are. It tells us about ultimate reality. It tells us what's wrong with the world. The Bible tells us how to correct that. Any good worldview is going to identify what the problem is and what the solution is. And of course, the, the, the solution the Bible offers, offers and authors <laughs> is this. It tells us the story of Jesus, which is really why the Bible has been so attractive to so many people through the years. The Bible tells the story of this great salvation that God won for us in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was crucified at the hands of sinful men. He died for our sins and he was raised from the dead. And the Bible is where we go for the authoritative description of that and explanation of that, how the whole thing works so that if anyone would repent and believe, repent of their sins and believe this gospel, these gospel truths. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised from the dead. You will be saved. That's the solution to the biggest problem that we have. And it's there in the Bible. But that's, as good, that's such good news for us who recognize the truthfulness of that. But it's not good news to the world. Being told that you're a sinner Bible's in conflict with culture when it comes to identity issues. What is it to be a human? What is it to be male or female? Ethical issues as well. The, the American Humanist Society Association was right. They listed a bunch of the ethical issues that the spirit of the age runs in sharp contrast to these ancient words of the Bible. The Bible also tells us what the church is. The Bible tells us what the mission of the church is as well. And there are a lot of good things that Gresham Bible could be doing. But what are we going to prioritize? We have to listen to God in his word. So one implication of the inspiration of scripture is that it is authoritative. Another implication of inspiration, if this actually is the word of God, is that the Bible is infallible. It is infallible. Here's my definition of infallibility, and I'll explain why I'm using that word here in a moment. It is impossible that scripture in the original manuscripts could affirm anything that is contrary to fact. That is what infallible means. It is impossible. Now, you might think, well, why not inerrancy? Because there are a lot of people who use the term in infallible because they don't like the term inerrancy. Now, again, for the record, I believe, maybe I'm one of these dinosaurs, but I believe the Bible is inerrant. So I'm totally happy with the doctrine of inerrancy. But, inf 
But infallibility is actually a stronger word when it's used rightly. To say that the Bible is inerrant is to say that it, it happens to not contain errors. It's a description of its instantiation, if you will, how it happens to be. And so if we, to, to give a definition of inerrancy, we could say something like this. Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. But I think infallible is actually a stronger word because it talks about the nature of the Bible. It is impossible, based on what the Bible is, that it could fail. It talks about how the scriptures must be. Now, there's biblical testimony to this. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. It is the author of Hebrews. Boy, it'll be so nice when we get the new heavens and new earth and we find out who the author of Hebrews is. And we've spent all this time, every time we talk and quote the person, we always say the author of Hebrews, right? So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God cannot lie. So infallibility and inerrancy are inferences that flow out of inspiration. We can't prove them. Right? You, you can't prove the non-existence of something. I can't prove to you that unicorns don't exist. I don't believe that they exist, just so you think I'm not totally crazy here, but, but I can't prove to you they don't exist because I would have to be all-knowing and I would have to be omnipresent. You can't prove the non-existence of something unless you are all-knowing and omnipresent. And I think God is both of those things. So maybe we ought to trust him when he says it's impossible for God to lie. Because it's impossible for him to lie, then we understand that his inspired word partakes of that very same character. If it's impossible for God to lie, if it's impossible for God to be mistaken or wrong, then it is impossible that he would lie, that he would be wrong or be mistaken in what he says. So infallibility, inerrancy, that flows out of our understanding of what scripture is. What does this mean for us? It means we trust the word of God as being true, come what may. Pilots are often instructed, always trust your instrumentation over your instincts. When things go wrong, it can be easy to become disoriented. You want to trust your instincts. You want to trust how you're feeling about the situation in the moment rather than your instrumentation. And many tragic accidents have, are caused not by mechanical failure, but by human error. That's what life is like in this world. It's so easy to get disoriented. It's so, when, when, when the tides of culture are all flowing one way and everything, it just, you know, there's a way that, is, that appears right to, to us, right? As we go with the flow of humanity and it's easy to become disoriented in that and, it'd be, and it's so easy to just go along, go along to get along. In those times, then we have to cling to what the Bible says. God is right. I've heard people say things like, well, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Well, that's fine, but that's not even strong enough. How about this? God said it, that settles it. And now it's up to us to believe it. Now it's up to us to believe it. This also implies that we should read the Bible. If it is God's word and if it is true, then we should read it humbly and we should read it charitably. We probably should give the biblical authors the benefit of the doubt. Right? They're, they're actually pretty good writers. And as I, 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 as I was wa totally wasting time on the American Humanist Association website, um, they, the, uh, the Mariners had lost, and so I didn't have anything to have to do. Um, they, um, they, they listed all of these contradictions in the scriptures, or what they claimed were contradictions, and every single one of them was easily explained. That they were not granting to the Bible something that they would very happily and easily grant to anybody who was standing next to them, right? It, 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 it's almost like, like the use of hyperbole where the Amalekites were said in the Old Testament to be as many as sand on the seashore. And they said, you know, like, that's impossible. That's impossible. It's, it's a hyperbolic statement. That's how people talk right? It's not an error. Like we know that the, the, there weren't an, an infinite number of Amalekites, and they didn't have an infinite number of camels, 
right? We, we get that. We're not morons. But that's how people talk. It's hyperbole. It's intentional exaggeration to make a point. We understand that about how we communicate. The biblical authors are human. They used figures of speech. Another implication for us here is that the Bible is sufficient. And here we go to the last verse in verse 17. We're told that scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? To what end? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I believe, we believe at Gresham Bible, the Bible is sufficient. The scriptures are sufficient for followers of Christ to be complete. That is, we have what we need from God to do every good work. My definition of the sufficiency of scripture is we have all the divine words that we need to live faithfully before him, to think faithfully before God. We have all the divine words that we need in God's judgment. We don't have clearly all the divine words we might want. I mean, it, I would like some more. And you think, really? Your Bible is enormous. It's because it's in like super giant font print so I can see it. Um, imagine if we had more divine words. Do we really? It, we probably don't want an exhaustive list of, or like a cookbook of everything to do. But instead, God has given us, he's taught us a way. There's wisdom here. And then we live faithfully in light of the wisdom that he's given to us. So, if, if the Bible is sufficient, then we need to listen to it. We need to shape our worldview according to what the Bible says. The Bible describes what's actually wrong with the world. And the Bible tells us how that problem is going to be solved. The Bible is very clear on what is wrong, sin. The Bible is very clear on what the solution is, the gospel. And if we believe that, if we believe the Bible is sufficient, then, then, then we're not going to try to add to or alter the words of the Bible when it comes to what we look for in, say, our ministry leaders. The Bible dictates what qualifications for ministry are. We've, I've said this, I think, a couple times in the last four or five months. We've noted how the qualifications for elder and deacon are spelled out in the New Testament, and they have a lot to do with character and very little to do with gifting. Elders are supposed to be able to teach. That's it. Everything else is just character. There's no mention of charisma or vision casting or business acumen. These are all things that the world values and the Bible doesn't even mention. And it wasn't because Paul ran out of ink. Maybe they're not as important for the running of Christ's church. Our worship services, we're going to orient around God's word here. We're going to preach the word of God. We're going to do so expositionally. We're going to sing the word of God. We're going to pray the word of God. You might have noticed our calls to worship, the benedictions. We're just reading scripture to you. It's not because we can't think of something else to say. Well, in my case, that would be the point, right? I can't. So we go to the Bible. No, it's because we firmly believe that who better than God to kick off and call us to worship than God himself? And so we're going to read scripture to you. What better way to walk out of the assembled weekly meeting than to have the word of God ringing in your ears as the last thing that is said from the pulpit? We're going to preach expositionally here. We will try to exercise wisdom in picking the books that we work through occasionally, like right now, we're going to do a little short topical series, but even then we're going to ground it in God's word. Hopefully you've, you've learned something about 2 Timothy 3 and about 2 Peter, right? Even this morning, our primary concern is to preach to you the whole counsel of God and to work through books. And that means that in God's providence, the scriptures will determine what's covered, not our felt needs or our desires. An illustration of that would be two weeks ago, I got to come up here and preach and the passage was about giving and I got to talk to you about giving. And there is like nothing else that I would least rather preach on than giving. But it was right there. So I had to, I had to do it. That means that (laughs) that allows God to set the agenda and it will always be timely because he's sovereign and he is all wise and he is all knowing and I am none of those things. We'll always look to have our worship songs be grounded in scripture. Mark and Mike and I meet and we talk about what the sermons are going to be about. I don't know if you've ever noticed, I hope you have, but Mark works really hard to make sure that the songs that we sing prepare you to hear the word of God and then respond to what you have heard. 
it's not just accidental. <laughs> There's a lot of thought that goes into that. Why? Because we're Gresham Bible Church. That's why we do it that way. And Mark does a great job with that in planning it. We want our prayers to be informed by scripture. That is, we, we hope to model for you as we pray publicly here what it is to pray the word of God. And, and if scripture is inspired and sufficient, then we can have every confidence that it is applicable to our very human situation. I mean, I suppose that if the Bible were just dropped out of the sky, divine words falling down, it sounds like, like an Indiana Jones movie back when they were good. And, and, and so you go to the... <laughs> I, I, Jeez, <laughs> I, I haven't seen the last one. Maybe it's better. Um, they, uh, and, and so we go there and it's like, you know, smoky and all this. And it's like, oh, these are divine words. And we read it and it's in like some divine language. And maybe then, I don't even know how we would interpret it. Maybe there'd be like some magic goggles or something we could wear so we could translate it. You'll get that later, I think, if you think about it for a while. And if you, if you still don't get it, Ask me, I'll tell you about it. Um, so we, we go to it and, 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 and we read it and we would probably be within our rights to think, okay, these are words dropped out of the sky, but why would we think they apply to us? Why, why would we necessarily think that? But see, the Bible wasn't just dropped out of the sky. It was inspired and it was born out of human need. Remember, we just, we just went through Galatians. Why did Paul write a letter to the Galatians? Because he heard about something that was going on in Galatia and moved by the Holy Spirit, he decided to address it. It was the most applicable thing in the world. The Bible is always applicable to us because it was written to us and in a very real way, though again, 100% divine, written by us as well. Have you ever thought about as, as Paul, as, as like David is, is, is confessing his sin to God? Have you ever thought, how are David's words of confession of sin to God simultaneously God's words to us? But they are, aren't they? How many of you have been helped by, by the Psalms where it's just people pouring out in their moment of need, they're pouring their hearts out to God? Probably every single one here has been, right? Because the Bible's great, because it's inspired. It's the word of God written to us, for us, and in a very real way, by us. In our preaching and teaching, we will model for you how to interpret the Bible. We will pay close attention to historical and literary context because it's, those are human things. That's how humans communicate. We're not Gnostics here. That is, you shouldn't expect to come here on Sunday morning and hear secret information from us. My desire every time I get up here to teach or to preach is that you would be taught how to read the Bible, that, that you walk away this morning more encouraged to read the Bible, more hopeful, more confident that you can understand it. We are not, the elders, Mike and I, the people who get up here and preach, we're not a priestly caste. We don't function as the authoritative magisterium. We, we don't deliver to you the interpretation that believe it, period. We're gonna seek to persuade you by opening up the scriptures. You might not always agree with what we say here, but I pray that you will understand our arguments. And if you disagree, then you're fine. You're welcome to come and talk to me. Maybe not like don't rush this pulpit or something, but, but come talk to me about it and we'll have an argument. And I, I'm not a cranky one. We'll just try to persuade each other. This is, that's what the Bible is. Now just a word or two on, on what it does. God works through his word. We believe that. Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11 read this way. This is the prophet Isaiah, 700 years or so before the time of Christ. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God does things through his speech. And you might think, well, of course he does. But this is actually a rather novel concept. We, that, that speech is not merely relaying to you what I happen to be thinking, but we do things. All of us do things when we talk. We explain, we 
command, we complain, we curse, we bless, we encourage, we promise, we do things. God does that. God does things like that as well. All those things. God creates through his word. Here's where he's not like us, right? Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. He's pretty powerful. That's, that's what his speech does. God, God gives life through his word. 1 Peter 1, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For, for those of you who know Jesus Christ, how did you come to know him? Through his word. God sanctifies through his word. 2 Peter 1, Peter writes, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that all things would include scripture, but it's not limited to it. There's lots of things that are included in that he's given to us, like the church. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So now we are talking very literally about God's word. God has given us promises. It, you know what? <laughs> so God can't lie. Have you ever seen the movie Liar, Liar before? I don't even know whether it's a good movie or not. I've just heard the premise of it. So don't take it as an endorsement. It's just an illustration where like Jim, Jim Carrey, right? He, he has to tell the truth all the time. And he gets himself in all sorts of trouble because all he, he has to tell the truth all the time. And we might think, well, well God is the same way. He has to tell the truth. And, we, and, and with, we, in the movie, I take it, you're watching it and you're cringing. You're thinking, just shut up, right? Just, just stop getting yourself into trouble. And we might think, well, that'd be the easiest thing for God. But God doesn't stop talking. He keeps telling truth. And more than that, God promises things. The God of the universe obligates himself to behave in a certain way toward you through his word. He has made promises to you. That is just breathtaking, stunning, that the God of the universe would obligate himself to you because he made a promise to you. And he does it over and over and over again. And, and like, I'm sure the angels in heaven are like, would you please stop talking, <laughs> right? You're, you're getting yourself into trouble. You committed to do that, you committed to do that. And yet God does it over and over and over again. He's given us these great precious promises. How? So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God's word is a little bit different than ours. It is living and active. His word is living and active. The author of Hebrews says this about it. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, what does that even mean, the word of God is living and active? I take it it means through the agency of the spirit of God. The spirit of God is one who inspired the word and the spirit of God who takes that word, which is called the sword of the spirit, takes that word and applies it in our lives or illuminates that word bringing understanding, applicability, appreciation, a right response, motivating that in us. And if that's the case, if all of this is true, if this is what God, if God uses his word in that way, then we should orient our lives around the word of God. Join a Bible study in, if you're not involved in one now, join one in the fall when, when, they, when they restart. Gather with, I'm preaching the choir literally here, gather with God's people to Read, hear, sing, pray the word of God together. Prioritize personal devotions, private Bible reading. Do you know you can read through the entire Bible in a year if you read four chapters a day? Four chapters takes 10, 15 minutes, even if you read really slow. Memorize scripture. When I was in my college days, I, I was in the Navigators and we carried around, we were like Christian nerds and we carried around verse packs and, and we were always working on a verse, but man, the capital I, that I was investing into my life at that time has paid return after return after return after return. I am still doing most of my teaching and preaching off of what I memorized when I was in college and it has stuck with me to this day. Young people, you're heading off for, for school, for college. Find a church that prioritizes the same things, preaching, singing, praying the word of God. Young people, if you can read, then read the Bible. Spend time reading, reading the Bible. If you're old enough to read, you're old enough to read God's word. We should stop now. So 
I, I began with John Wycliffe. We'll conclude with another character from history, William Tyndale. Tyndale was a teacher at Oxford and Cambridge. He lived about 100 years after Wycliffe. He's also English. English reformer. He was a contemporary of, of Luther and, and, and the early reformers. And he too wanted to produce an English translation of the New Testament. But he found, 100 years after Wycliffe, that England was not a very safe place to do that. His work was met with great hostility. This was his vow as he was arguing with the, with the Roman Catholic Church at the time. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy, the English boy that drives the plow, to know more of the scriptures than you, he said to the parish priest. He completed his New Testament, traveled in secrecy from city to city throughout Germany, looking for printers for it. When a printer was found, the Bibles were smuggled into England in hay bales. He ended up settling in the city of Antwerp, Belgium, to complete his work on the Old Testament. It was a free city where he was supposed to be safe from the arm of the Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Emperor. But in 1534, he was kidnapped out of the free city by Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. He had earlier been condemned as a heretic, and so he was sentenced to death. He was an ordained priest himself, so they weren't going to kill him by burning him at the stake, but they were going to burn him at the stake. They mercifully strangled him while he was on at the stake, and then they burned his body. But as he is being strangled, his dying words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Gresham Bible Church. Gresham Bible Church. We are richly blessed to have God's word at our fingertips in a language that we can understand. The inspired, authoritative, infallible, inerrant, sufficient, living word of God. So here we stand. May we do no other. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that your spirit would so move in us that we would continue to prioritize it and where we have not, that we would do that even more so here at the church. And we pray, Father, in our own lives as well, that the word of God would be living and active in our lives. And it would be calling us and rebuking us and encouraging us and giving us hope and peace and all the wonderful things that you do through your word. Have your way in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.